Who can say where the killer roams? When the blood flows, it's slaying time. Slay away. Slay away. Slay away. listening to Slay Away, where we dissect horror films, the true events that inspired them, lore, gore, and every kill in between. I'm E.L. King, and on this episode, we're excited to chat with Malum writer and director Anthony DePlazzi and star Natalie Victoria about the reimagining of their film Last Shift. After moving to Los Angeles, de Blasi became a protege of filmmaker and novelist Clive Barker before partnering with Barker's production company, Midnight Picture Show, for the following decade, where he served as a key executive and producer on films like Midnight Meat Train and Book of Blood. He made his directorial debut with the psychological thriller Dread in 2009, a feature film he wrote based on the Clive Barker short story of the same name. De Blasi directed and co-wrote Last Shift, a critically acclaimed supernatural horror film released by Magnolia Pictures, before marrying actress Natalie Victoria, who starred as Mary Gold in Last Shift before reprising her role in Malum. Malum follows rookie police officer Jessica Lauren, who willingly takes the Last Shift at a newly decommissioned police station, attempting to uncover the mysterious connection between her father's death and a vicious cult. I can see the fear in your eyes. You saw something you can't explain. This way, rookie. Call's been rerouted to the new station. So it should be quiet. There's emergency, the station's number's on the desk. Shall be fine. Hello? They told us that Captain Lauren's daughter would be joining the department. Yes, sir. Just want to work where my father worked, even if it's for one night. He was a hero. Until he wasn't, you know. Lanford Police Department. You don't know what happened. But your father was no saint. Your daddy started something very important. Tonight we're going to finish it. The Temple Baron will bring forth the low god. And I will be redeemer. Infinite mouth. This anymore. Just get me out. We pray in the temple of the Lord God. 
welcome Anthony and Natalie. It's so great to have you here. First to you, Anthony, you know, you've been in the director's chair making horror and thriller films for over a decade. So how did you discover your love of horror? Because you clearly gravitate to the horror genre. For sure. You know, I grew up, you know, my dad was a big, he's a big movie lover. And, you know, I grew up with, you know, watching the Universal Monster movies at a really young age and then kind of watching horror. You know, my parents were never, they never really restricted me from watching anything. Um, And I would watch horror with them. Um, Phenomena was like the first horror movie I really remember seeing at a really young age and then like Nightmare on Elm Street. And and I, I always gravitated towards horror because I loved the special effects. I just loved the special makeup effects. And at an early age and also model making anything, anything that incorporated those things. I was like, I'd really love to get into that someday. And so I, horror was always monster movies and, and things like that were, were the things that I watched the most growing up and always watched again and again. So I definitely, when I went to film school, that was on the back of my mind, but you know, that most film schools don't offer those kinds of classes. You have to, because I wanted to be a filmmaker, so I didn't want to go to a specialized school for for makeup. And then once I was in college, it really you know became more about writing and directing and and the filmmaking process. But because of horror, I can get to play in that sandbox, you know, when when we're making horror films. And I like to scare people. Well, Malum was a pretty scary watch for me. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, I can't say that I did not see last shift before watching Malum. That's good. I prefer that actually, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because it really was made for a new audience. Yeah. When there's a reimagining, I usually never think about the prior film because there's no point in comparing them to each other. It's supposed to be a different uh, experience. So, um, well, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, getting into the film industry initially? I know you had moved to Los Angeles and you'd worked with Clive Barker. Yeah, I, yeah, I was, I mean, I was lucky when I went to film school, I went to, I went to Emerson specifically because they had a program where you could go to Los Angeles, either your junior or senior year. So I was like, well, I'm going to go my last semester and just stay there and just try to make as many opportunities as possible. And while you're there, you have to get uh, an internship. Um, so, you know, if you don't get an internship, they send you home. Uh, so I ended up getting an internship with Marvel Studios. And at the time, they didn't have a ton going on. They had just finished the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie. So they, everyone's really excited about that. Obviously, that came out and did really well. But, you know, the the big players were all under the same roof back then. It was Kevin Feige and it was Avi Arad together um, before they went in separate directions. But I had a lot of free time on my hands. So I, because of, I was looking at special effects houses and things like that. And I had reached out to my advisor and said, hey, do you know anyone in horror? And she she kind of threw out a bunch of names. Like she threw out Wes Craven's company and John Carpenter's company and, and Clive's company. And Joe Daly was working for Clive and he had gone to Emerson for like a semester and then transferred. Cause he was from Massachusetts as well. And then he went to NYU 
so that was, you know, to me, that was like, okay, well, that's an in. We have, we're both from Massachusetts and, and he went to Emerson for a semester. I just hounded him for a few weeks until, um, he was like, all right, let's take a meeting and you can come on as an intern. And, but in that meeting, Clive was there and I was not really expecting that. <laughs> you know, we, <laughs> we, we went up to his house and, and then I met Clive in that meeting and we just had a lot in common. And I, I, you know, we, we liked a lot of the same things. And, and at the time I hadn't read any of his books. I just, I knew his movies very well. Um, so I was lucky enough in that meeting to kind of either strike a chord with Joe and Clive and, and get in as an assistant. And then they hired me before I graduated. So I, I had that, that job before I left college. And then that was it. Then I was on my way. So you had also partnered with Clive, um, his production company, uh, Midnight Picture Show. And I know you did some executive producing and other key work there. And you worked on Midnight Meat Train, which is actually a film that I saw and I was super into it. And it sort of reignited some of that like monster movie stuff that I was into as a kid. Oh, awesome. Yep. Yeah. I was there for that whole production. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was really a, liked that one. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, but I know, people are still finding that movie, so that's cool. Yeah, it's I'm I actually I tend to be surprised by how many people don't know about it. And I'm like, yeah, it came out like forever ago at this point, and yeah. it's really really good. You go check it out. So Malum is a reimagining of your acclaimed supernatural horror film Last Shift with really an expanded vision. So it has been called a hellscape and a bloody cult nightmare, paying respect to the original, but standing on its own. Uh, what led you and co-writer Scott Hoyley to explore the mythos around the cult further and expand on the story? You know, when we decided to kind of jump into this from last shift and last shift we had, because we really wanted to make this for a new audience, um, there were a few things from that movie certain things that we really liked that we wanted to bring over to this kind of like in an evil dead, evil dead two kind of way that we're going to things that we thought worked really well in that movie. We're going to bring into this one change up a bit so that fans of the first one will have a new experience and then branch off from it in a much larger way. And, and so a lot of those base things with the cult and the mythology, which was different in the first film, we barely hint touch at it it was more, they were more generically demonic because they kind of needed to be caricatures. They weren't in it very much. So with this one, we really wanted to create our own mythology. I wanted to take it away from the, I mean, we, you know, it is in, in the reviews and stuff, we're getting hellscape a lot and things like that. Cause the imagery is, feels demonic, but I didn't want to have it be, satanic i didn't because because it's to me that's been done a million times so we really wanted to do something that was more harkens to lovecraftian where you know he was creating his own creations that's what we wanted to do we wanted to create phraseology that people had not heard before and images um that people had not seen before in the term of yes does it feel demonic but it was important for us to be like, okay, oh, I'd have never heard of these things like the low God and the temple baron. And it's more of an ancient evil, yeah. you know, an ancient mythos that almost predates our culture. And, um, you know, it was designed to kind of feel that way with the monsters and, and mm -hmm. the language and the terms. Pre, pre biblical. 
I felt while watching Malum that it really played into being more of a folk horror film when you get into things like the Low God than being something that was like purely an occult film because they're not necessarily one in the same. Well, bloodier than you might expect, but yeah. But with the, the Wicker Man quality, yeah, I, I think the cult yeah. lends itself to that, and and I love Wicker Man. Um, it's definitely in in line with those of those things, and and um, I can definitely see that. So I had also read that Malum, it's more than a name. So I thought it was like maybe the Low God, um, but I think it really means evil um, in its translation. So what's the significance of Malum to the film? How does it play uh, into everything? Well, Malum is, we we wanted to change the name of the, the lead villain from last year to this one um, and kind of landing on how he would be described, you know, his name in the movie is, is John Malum. And, you know, is that his real name? We don't know. You know, is it, is a name he, he took on himself? Maybe. Um, but that's, that's, he goes by John Michael Malum and. <laughs> All biblical names actually. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 yeah, exactly. Right. It took a long time to kind of just find that name that felt right. And that kind of, rolled off the tongue in the, in the right way and kind of harkened back to the first film a little bit, but it was different. It was also with Malum. We liked that it's roots in Latin and that it not only meant evil, but there's definitions that meant evil specifically against the law and evil against the right side of things. We thought that was very specific and, and made sense for this movie because of its context and stuff. So that was um, kind of the building blocks of the Malum name. And calling the movie Malum, again, was to tell people, like, it's not about this night. It's not about this one character. It's about this much bigger mythology with the cult. So that's why we landed on that title. But you also get a sense of that throughout the film. There's a lot of sort of chaos going on outside. You start at the beginning. There's unrest going on. And so it's almost something that's encompassing the entire town, um, yeah. maybe the world. <laughs> this maybe. Is post, post, you know, pre-apocalypse. <laughs> could be. Type could of be. feeling. Um, the wait for the sequel to find out. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I love occult horror and Balam's opening was really intriguing and just intensely terrifying. So it introduced us to the cult and its influence and the term pig and the creatures appear many times throughout the film. The head of an infant pig is thrown at Jessica's squad car at the beginning of the film. The police are frequently referred to as pigs, which I'm sure a lot of people are going to be familiar with. And a pig with a ritualistic symbol appears at the precinct door, among several other instances throughout the film with squealing and different things going on. Um, is there any intended symbolism concerning pigs in the film? For sure. In in the first movie, we hinted at it just enough. I mean, she's referred to as a sow and things like that. And and I've really wanted to incorporate a, a pig into a film for a long time. Um, uh, and it felt right for this movie because of the terminology with police and, and broadening that into the backstory with both kind of the homeless guy and, and the cult and, and how that all ties together. 
we thought it would be really interesting because of the police connection and the police station to see a live pig walking down those hallways at the station would be um, memorable imagery. So we, you know, we went after looking for a really, I mean, that pig was like 650 pounds. It was a very large, large sow and um, trained very well. It was a pet pig. So it, 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 it took direction better than most pigs. Um, but for sure it was, we wanted to make those connections with, with the police and the ritual and, and also the consumption of what pigs are known to, to be able to digest human bone and things like that. I think it's a creepy element to bring in. So one thing that I found really interesting while watching is that clearly the film is set in the present, like this time period, because there's computers and cell phones and things like that. The computer is like a brick, (laughs) so it it could be kind of old. But at the same time, we're sort of evoking that it could also be happening in the 1960s or 1970s. So it really blurs reality. And I think part of that is like, for whatever reason, every cult is like (laughs) something that's happening in in the free love, free spirited uh, type of time period. (laughs) So um, yeah, I don't don't know. It was was just really interesting. It, It almost kind of gives you a sense that time is irrelevant. Time is irrelevant. Yeah, I think that's what we wanted. We wanted to feel more timeless than anything. So, and you're like, yes, she has a cell phone and people have various types of technology. And, um, but yes, a lot of the, a lot of the costuming, we went back to, to more of the Manson era. Um, and, you know, definitely John's dress is not what you would say modern either. So there's definitely a mixture so that we could, it could feel more timeless and almost, almost like a different dimension, if you will. It's just not, not yes, okay. our world. <laughs> I think yeah. that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Um, uh, well, and it's interesting to think of Jessica sort of falling through more than one dimension throughout the film, uh, as things escalate. But, um, the precinct itself is this kind of dilapidated labyrinth and, um, while it's open, it has dark corridors, those really breed fear and there's this claustrophobic anxiety it really bends our sense of reality as viewers along with jessica's the setting felt key to uh expressing jessica's state of mind and and what is essentially her journey to the low god so uh and jessica sula really delivers this outstanding performance with really genuine anguish and terror i very much believed her at every step of the way throughout the film Um, and of course someone drenched in blood has never looked quite as exquisite to me personally. Um, (laughs) I'd love to hear more about the experience um, just filming Malum. Yeah, it was that, it was a real decommissioned police station in Kentucky, in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, It was in the summer, this past summer, so it was very hot. You know, we tried to keep that building as cool as we could, but the upper floors just got very hot. And that as you said, it's, it's kind of its own character. It was, it was important that we filmed at a police station and, and that's kind of why we settled on Kentucky because there's not, not a ton you can choose from. It was very, it was a four story building with a basement. It was in the heart of the city. So it was a much, much, much larger station than we had used in last year. Um, and I think, you know, Natalie can speak on kind of being in that station as an actor 
and what it felt like because it, it was a it was a very creepy location kind of set the tone I mean it was it was and you know having been the only cast member that worked on last shift and Malum, I think you know kind of had a unique point of view on this you know and in last shift we shot in this decommissioned police station too but it was very small it was one floor also all the walls were white and it was very bright you know so Anthony just kind of decided to embrace that fluorescent lighting and go with it you know and it gave that look for that film for Malum you know we had this gorgeous four-story with a basement you know, decommissioned um, police station that the architecture really harkened back to like the 1940s, early 1950s. Um, It was really, really cool. Um, Had like a full basketball court inside, you know, which, you know, added to the story and the expansiveness. But um, what was interesting too is, you know, an actor is, you know, like, oh, wow, this looks really cool. And they're like, oh, no, 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 don't go over there Um, yet. Because the art direction team hasn't cleaned everything up yet, but we realized there was actual real blood on the walls, yeah. real black mold. And they had to, you know, his whole art direction and production set team had to like clean all of that up and then put fake blood and fake black mold up. So it was crazy. Um, but there were a lot of eerie sounds on the upper floors of that police station in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, it definitely had a heaviness to it. I mean, there was, you know, a hallway that none of the actors really wanted to walk down. So <laughs> there's a lot of scary, dark hallways in the film. Yeah. But I like that this kind of explanation of black mold, uh, it'll make you crazy. Kind of that gets referenced in the film, but at the same time as a viewer, it's like, well, is this just a reaction to black mold or is this really happening to her? I really like that. We have to decide for ourselves. Uh, yeah. What's happening. Is it real? Is it not real or only parts of it real? Like we don't know. Yeah, and I think through you know, and and that was a challenge for for Jesse Sula as well. And and what we wanted to get across is that we really want people to be in her shoes throughout the movie, never be ahead of her. And if she feels like she's, if she feels like she's losing her mind, then the audience should feel like that too. Is this, is this really happening? Can I trust what I'm seeing? Um, you know, people are telling her, no, it's this. And she's like, no, but that doesn't make sense to me. There's more here going on. Um, and that not only in the station were we jumping around a lot, the schedule, because we scouted that one location for many, many hours, I wanted to use the best rooms that we could for the look. So we were often jumping from the second floor to the fourth floor, to the third floor, to the first floor, to the basement, um, (laughs) which creates a little bit of a hectic schedule and keeping her, and probably helped that she felt like, I have no idea what's going on. Like, it's a, you know. Yeah, that disjointed feeling, you know, helps for an actor's performance 100%. And and just, she, she killed it. Yeah, she kills it. And keeping her on that emotional journey to the, we did save, we, tr- we scheduled all the end of the movie stuff at the end of the schedule. So she could really work towards that as we went along. What's interesting is a lot of the, things start happening at the beginning it's she doesn't react to them that much it's like she's just she's making an rational excuse for what's going on and then she she's like finally in it she's like okay (laughs) this is more than just my mind playing tricks on me i'm in kind of a spooky scary place i'm alone um and that was kind of cool because at first i was like well why is she not more concerned about those three bodies that just dropped from the ceiling (laughs) um 
Yeah. So, and then like with the cult at the end and, and all these things happening, it's, it's interesting. It's hard to know what's real and what wasn't real, but at the same time I could sort of discern like, Oh, this is happening, but this is maybe a vision or this is something that's playing into it and, and sort of coincides with it. Um, it's hard to explain it. That's the whole thing. It's <laughs> reality's all over the place. It's all over the place. Uh, <laughs> but I liked, I, I really liked that. So, um, you know, the creature makeup and effects were just incredible. I love practical effects. Um, it, were you really into 1980s, like horror films? Did that influence the designs at all? Cause like Betty, um, and we're not talking about the pig, but the, the, the actual Betty, yeah. um, and the low God, they felt kind of reminiscent of creatures from like the thing or Hellraiser. They're like grotesque, but fascinating. And they really had a certain beauty to them. I think that's, yeah, definitely what we were going for with Russell effects is that, you know, movies like the thing and the, and the blob and fright night and, and Halloween three and in these, these moments of these great special effects that are both, you know, when I was young, I wanted to look at that stuff. Like you, you want to look at it, you know, when you open up Zango and you get to see the behind the scenes and things like that, it definitely feeds that, that demon that we want to see how this stuff is made and kind of relish in its glory. And yes, Hellraiser for sure. Um, is a Clive stuff is always going to be a big influence on me. For the low god, I have to say, I got big Cenobite vibes. <laughs> yeah, and and it was in the script because we wanted to, because you haven't seen Last Shift. There's this this pentangle character, you know, with a character with this pentangle on its face, and we wanted to update that for this movie. And I wanted to create this thing that kind of pulled off the face, and then you saw this pentagram, and that was a way for us to update that character and make it new and functional. Um, and, you know, I think, and then by way of that, it becomes almost Cenobite because with the, the pulled skin and the, the other attachments to the body. And, but, you know, we, what the Russells did with it was excellent. And yeah, so hopefully, you know, people who love monsters can be like, Ooh, that looked really cool. I want to see what it looked like, you know, when they were making it, I want to get, get that on a t-shirt yeah, or a, that's me. A, an action figure. <laughs> yeah. Give me a whole section just on the special special effects and the team and behind the scenes on maybe the Blu-ray release in the future. Yeah, yeah, I'm very into that. Definitely some BTS stuff coming. And then, and then this month's Fango has a, a nice layout in it. If you. Oh, good. I'm subscribed. I'll, I'll wait. wait. Is that the one with evil dead rise on the cover? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I just got mine. <laughs> oh, it's in there. It's all in there. <laughs> Natalie, what can you tell us about your character in the film? Specifically, you know, you enter the precinct, you're with Jessica um, Marigold and her have a conversation that's really sort of the turning point in the film for Jessica's character. It is. It is, yeah. I mean, I can do it real briefly. I mean, so Marigold in this film is, you know, has a little bit, uh, more element of danger that's elevated quite a bit. Um, I get to do stunts in this film and do my own stunts, which is great. Um, so there's that. So not to give any spoilers away, but um, you know, the Marigold, so a fan saw Marigold in Last Shift, it's a completely different reimagined from the physicality to the tone of the voice to the way she looks. She's almost like a multiverse walker in the sense that, you know, it's like they're two different films completely. So they'll feel familiar, but different. But her character is, um, you know, you're not really sure if she's good or 
bad, if she's a harbinger of, of doom um, or justice destruction or, or what's going on with her. But yeah, there's it's a wild ride of a lot of ups and downs in a very short amount of time that um, really gives some important tidbits to Officer Lauren, Jasula's character, and basically kind of shifts the entire movie from that point in a direction that moves really quickly and is a fast ride. So it was a lot of fun to do. Um, you know, definitely a challenge as an actor to be able to hit all that in such a short amount of time, but Anthony did such a good job writing that. So I knew I had to deliver. (laughs) So it was a very frightening intensity to scene and the way that Jessica's reacting to you. It's all very believable. And when I say it's a turning point, it's because that's almost when Jessica starts to accept that whatever's going on is not just in her head. It's mm-hmm. supernatural. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and to comment on something you said earlier with Jess, you know, and how those bodies drop, the, the thing that I always told her while we were shooting is that she's there to find out the mystery of what happened to her father. You know, she, that's her only objective of being there that night. And so anytime that something strange or seemingly like seemingly supernatural happens, it validates that. So even if it's something scary, it, it quenches that, that need she has like, well, wait, something's not right here, which validates me. I, you know, I know my father's not who they say he is. So every time she sees something in that first act, you know, it validates that. And she's like, well, I have to, I have to keep going. I have to keep, keep looking for more answers. So that was a way she was definitely playing it and that we talked about. Um, well, so that brings me back to something else we were talking about. Um, and this has to do with her father and then her, because in a sense, there's a mirror of what happens with him with her later on in the film. And there's something that the cult says specifically, one of the the girls, uh, the three girls, um, and she's talking about ritual and like spilling blood and the best blood to spill is human blood. And um, so we have that sort of happening at the beginning of the film. And it's, you know, this is, I think, feeding or fueling the, the low God. But then unintentionally, we have Jessica playing into doing the exact same thing at the yeah. end of the film. And I was just sitting there thinking, oh my God, she's spilling and she's spilling more. And yeah. this is going to go so bad. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. she's not even thinking about it. She's just thinking about this is me trying to survive, right? Um, but unfortunately, it all plays into to that ending that I will not give away. Yeah. And if you go back, like, it, we didn't want to hammer it on the head. Like, just like, we wanted the people to pick up on it. And like, the, the cult says just enough and then and then the homeless man says just enough like they they they're literally telling her you know she must be present on the night of his arrival uh, she must participate with great purpose and ritual and 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 she she had just killed no spoiler she had just spilled blood of an animal i guess that's a spoiler but whatever <laughs> but you, you know and and then she's literally telling her you know an animal will give you some but a human will give you more and then she is participating she's spilling the blood she's the sacrifices and and spilling blood i think is very important for for most rituals in in throughout history so it is that kind of i am a willing participant i am i'm bringing this onto myself I, they told her they were they were like well giving you the rules and she's still yeah. doing it you <laughs> you're know? not uh 
thinking about it, you haven't, you don't believe what we're saying. Yeah. Um, the precinct itself is almost just like this uh, ritualistic goblet that's just getting filled over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, and the, the fact that, I, and I don't know how old she was when this incident occurred with her father. Um, I assume she was a little child at the time, maybe like 10, 13. Um, and the fact that this has stayed with that location for a long time, you talk about sort of um, marked locations or haunted locations mm -hmm. or someplace where bad things tend to happen. And the fact that after the, the incident occurred, that it turns into this dilapidated station. It's really interesting in that way. Cool. Yeah. Which, right. When, when there's mass murder in a building, that stuff yeah. never goes away. It's the building is its own character in the film, which is great. I think really adds to the ambiance, but certainly helps like all the actors and performers really give a visceral, you know, performance for the film, um, even more so just because it had that heaviness to it, which is great. It had a heaviness for sure. Cause, cause all the, all the prisoners that were in that building, I mean, you can, you can feel it. It, it, it just, it's like the walls just, when you walk down those hallways, you're like, you you're like, well, geez, can you imagine like living here and being here for, you know, being, um, before they head to it, like an actual, um, prison, uh, it, it's got a super heaviness to it because prisoners would stay, that's like county, they stay in county for years sometimes. I ended up buying a house, but it's like too much space for me and I feel uncomfortable in the amount of space. So the, the open space in the police station reminded me of that discomfort <laughs> that I have. Yeah. And, but then at the same time, I was like, I feel, I'm feeling claustrophobic because of the darkness surrounding these open spaces yeah <laughs> so um because there's nothing more scary than a dark corner in a big room I, yeah i know right you're like because there's got to be something hiding there yeah i mean it, it is it's funny how like too much space just creates an eeriness because it's like well i can't keep my eye on every space right how every there, could, there could be something somewhere <laughs> yeah even last night every time i hear like something <laughs> like, <laughs> i get a little and i'm a light sleeper so it's a, uh you get a little bit freaked out but um this i made sure to watch during the day so okay. i was fine <laughs> well i absolutely love the film i can't thank you enough for being here and taking the time is there anything on the horizon that we can look forward to i know sometimes you can't talk about it but if you can we want to know Natalie and I are we we've been writing together um, for a few years now, so we have a uh, kind of hand that rocks the cradle type thriller shopping <gasps> oh, around I now film. called the Step Counter. So yeah, cool. It's a uh, we love doing this on the podcast, so I really appreciate your time. Definitely. Absolutely, thank you for having us. Thank you. 